James starts off chapter 5, uh, last week we looked at it, where he's warning the rich not to oppress the righteous poor. There are uh, unrighteous rich and righteous rich. There's unrighteous poor and righteous poor. And he's warning them, he's giving a warning, he's issuing a warning to the wealthy not to do that. And then this week, we, he kind of shifts his focus to look at those who are being persecuted. And his basic big message is this, hang in there, it's going to get better. Hang in there, it's worth it to keep pressing on. Now look at the screen for a second. We get this. Every time that we allow someone with a white jacket on to take a needle and shove it into our arm, we understand that that's momentary pain for something better. Kids, how many times have your parents told you it's worth it to get a shot, even though this is going to hurt a little? How much did it hurt? A lot, right? It hurt a lot more than a little, but still, it was it was worth it. Uh, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've done any kind of distance, you know, marathon running or cycling or some kind of a thing, and you've pushed your body beyond what your brain is telling you is fun or reasonable or comfortable, you, you understand this, that it's, this is for a season. It's, it's worth the reward to just keep pressing on, uh, scraping metal on teeth, waiting in line for anything. I don't care if it's, you know, somewhere in Disneyland or the bank, or outside of an Apple store, people wait in line because this is momentary pain that's going to pay off with some kind of reward. So this is a message that we see preached over and over, and we see the principle going on here over and over in life. We do this all the time, where we, where we endure a certain amount of pain because we anticipate some kind of reward. Now remember that James opened this whole letter, he's writing to Christians on the run, Right? He's literally writing as if someone came in, the military came in here and said, you cannot be a church anymore, and they they literally forced us out of our homes. So we had to go be on the run. That's the church he's writing to. And as he's writing to this church on the run, here's what he says. Remember back to chapter 1. Don't just survive your trials and troubles. Thrive in them. Remember this? Consider it all joy when you go through trials. And he goes on to say, don't be wishy-washy. Don't be like a cork bobbing about in the surf, tossed every which way by every wind of doctrine. One person comes along and says this. One person comes along and says that. And you're just all over the map. You know what he says? Make up your mind. Figure it out. Get firm. Get your feet firm on this. Now, we talked about this. That requires some homework. It requires some pursuit on your part. Otherwise, everything will just kind of sound sort of right. And will kind of constantly be bobbing back and forth. Around week two, I think, of this series, we had, uh, we had a big pile of rocks somewhere. I can't remember where we had them. I think we had them in the middle in a, in a wheelbarrow. And some of you, one of you picked up this very rock. And this very rock represented one of your trials or temptations or struggles or difficulties that was going on in your life that, at that time. What we've done with them, by the way, after we brought them and left them at the foot of the cross, is we, we're starting to, to decorate them over here. We're considering them joy, and we're just, we're just using them as decoration. But let me ask you something. Think back, if you were here for that service, and you grabbed a, rick, uh, a rock or a cement block or a brick or something like that, what has happened since you picked this up? Think back to that trial. Think back to that temptation. Think back to the difficulty that was going on. What's happened since? It's been several weeks now, maybe a few months. Has God shown himself faithful in your trial and temptation? Here's a question. Can you even remember what it was 
Some of you might, it might have been a light enough trial that you thought, wow, it was really big and heavy. What was it that I picked? Maybe for some of you, time has offered perspective on your trial and what you once thought was a real nasty thing and something you can't imagine how God would have worked something good. Now, already, just in a few short weeks and months, you can look back on it and say, you know what? God has shown himself faithful. God's, God's supplied richer than that. Maybe some of you are still carrying this burden. In fact, it's doubled in size. And you say, I know exactly what trial I was thinking of. And it's still here. I'm still in that dark place. I'm still in the desert and in the valley. Pain is universal because of the fact that we live in a fallen, cursed world. We're not going to go back and revisit that. If you missed the early parts of this book, you need to go back and listen to it because it just talks about uh, the way God uses and the way God can orchestrate pain in our life. But it's universal. It leads us early on here in our message to our... Cowboys dumb for the week, and that's this. Life is short and full of blisters. Okay? That's the cowboy way of saying life's hard, pain is a reality. Now there's a few different kinds of trouble. There's regular trouble, like broken cars, broken bodies, misunderstandings, disappointments, uh, and faulty diapers. That's the world I live in. That's just regular trouble. That's just stuff that goes on, right? And Job, a guy who knows something about, about trouble, we're gonna actually look at the life of Job a little bit this morning, because he's in our text. But Job said it this way. Next time you sit around a campfire, think about this. He says that man was born for trouble as sparks fly upward. When you're sitting around a campfire and you just see those little sparks going up, right, in the heat. You look at that and go, wow, Job said that man was born for trouble as sparks fly upward. There's going to be trouble in life. That's regular trouble. There's also dumb trouble. Here's what I mean by dumb trouble. Dumb trouble is punishment for your crime consequence for your sin, ignoring laws of gravity. Okay, this is dumb trouble. This is just, I've done something and there's just consequences to it. It's not the regular stuff of life where something broke or I can put it on someone else. This is my own thing that came out of my mouth and I'm reaping the the benefit or the consequence of that decision. I'm sitting in jail because I broke a law and and now I'm having to do the, the time for the crime. It's that sort of thing. That's dumb trouble. But then there's also Christian trouble. Christian trouble is living for Jesus in the world. And when you live for Jesus in the world, what does Jesus promise us? You will have, say it, trouble. Right? That's part of it. But what we talked about a few weeks ago at the beginning of this thing is, is let's try to minimize the dumb trouble. Regular trouble is going to be there. But let's expect and even embrace Christian trouble and see that it's there. Here's the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Catch this. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Jesus talking about trials and temptations. That's not an off-quoted verse by people. They like to quote Jesus in all kinds of things, but rejoice and be glad. When someone comes up and says, man, I'm in a deep, dark trouble, you just go, let's party. I mean, Jesus said, let's rejoice and be glad in this. If it's the right kind of trouble, right? If it's dumb trouble, there might be rebuke that goes on. There might be some scripture memorization that goes on. But if it's Christian trouble, we look at that and say, wow, you're just like the prophets. 
Rejoice in that. Be very glad, is how one translation says it. Now, James knew the temptation that was placed on godly people when they're under persecution. So he writes to encourage them to do this, ready? To look forward, to look ahead, not get swamped by just what you see. Now, let me just say this. You have to answer this for yourself. Kids, you cannot answer this for your parents. Siblings cannot answer it for one another. Spouses do not answer this for your spouse, okay? Here's the question. You're all dying to know the question, aren't you? Have you ever lost it? I mean, have you ever utterly lost it? I see some nods. There's some truth-tellers in here. When, when we talk about this, there are certain times when someone comes along, and I think these very exact words have come out of my mouth, I am about to lose it. I'm about to lose it. And sometimes that's just in my own mind. I am right on the verge of losing it. Um, some of you have lost it. Some of you lose it on a regular basis. You don't even know what you lose, but you lose it regularly. You're about to, then you do, then you do it again, right? Some of you are subtle losers. You know, you lose it, but you lose it in a very internal, subtle kind of way. Let me, let me give you uh, three people. You've heard of Peter, Paul, and John. Um, these are, these are, th- no, not those three. The other three. These are three Christians, okay? Who lost it? Let me just give you a quick snapshot of, of some pictures of them losing it. Peter. Peter runs away from Jesus at his deepest need, and he loses it. He takes off, and then he denies him three times. Hey, weren't you one of those who were out there? No, 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 no that wasn't me. How about the Apostle Paul? Wrote much of the New Testament. Just jot this down, Acts 23, verse 3 and following. There's a little episode where Paul is there. The Apostle Paul. We think that the Apostle Paul walked on water sometimes, or we think he never struggled with things. There's a scenario there where where he's there, and he's talking and saying some things, and he says some things, and he gets he gets slapped. Now, he's probably sick of getting beat up, punched, sucker punched, whipped, chained, left for dead, stoned, shipwrecked, all these things that go on with him. At this point in time, he just loses it. And he turns to the guy, he starts name-calling him, he starts saying these different things, and then he's corrected, and he actually admits it was a wrong thing to do. Because he finds out the position that this guy is, and he says, I didn't realize that was it, I shouldn't talk against the Lord's anointing, I shouldn't talk against someone who God's put in power. So he actually retracts what he does. But he loses it. At this point, when he gets smacked this time, he's just, he's had it up to here, he's fed up. So he loses it. How about John? The John I'm talking about here is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was um, a prophet. He was really uh, the prophet, the last prophet of all these prophets that were proclaiming Messiah, proclaiming a Savior, saying to look forward, look forward, look forward. You know what John gets to do? John's the last one. John's like, it's about to begin. He's here, and he's calling out in the wilderness. Remember this guy? John goes through this ministry, and at one point, John loses it. You know where John is? He's in a prison cell. He's sitting there. What we know with the story is that he's about to be beheaded. He's about to be killed for following Jesus to the very end. And as he's in there, he takes some of his disciples. He says, would you just go to Jesus and ask him this question? Are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? What's going on? Why is he saying that? You know why he's saying that? He's in a prison cell. He thought, man, if God were to come down on earth, I wouldn't think that uh, you know, a, a relative and a forerunner and a prophet of him would be left to rot and die in a prison. 
What is Jesus' answer? Do you remember what Jesus answers to John the Baptist's disciples to tell them to go back and say? Some of you know this. What is it? Call it out. Roughly. You don't need to quote it exactly. Hey, the blind are, are given sight. The deaf are, are hearing. What does he do? He points to the signs. That's what Jesus says. You know what he's doing? He's comforting them, saying, saying, this is the one. No one can do these things but God. So he sends word back. James knows the temptation placed on godly people when they're under persecution. We don't know exactly, but I wonder about James's. If Peter was courageous Peter, big bad Peter, and he ran, it says that when the, when the shepherd was struck, all the sheep scattered. That's a reference to the disciples all leaving. I wonder if James had his own persecution in mind, his own fleeing, his own denials in mind. All right, James chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 11. You with me? James 5, verse 11, verse 7. Chapter 5, here we go. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and full of mercy. Now, I don't know what it's like for you on a road trip, but both growing up and now with my own family, um, a road trip, I mean, just, it's almost like Pavlov's dog. You hear the click of the seatbelt, you know, you hear the car start up, and the questions begin to form in my kids' minds very, very early on, this deep, penetrating question that seems to well up almost with every car ride, and here it is, ready? Are we there yet? Right? Are we there yet? Has anyone ever asked, are we there yet? Raise your hand, let me see it, okay? I don't care if we're driving to Mexico and you're saying we're going to a different country. Or if we're going, you know, across across town a little ways, there's this deep question that raises in, in us, are we there yet, right? Now, on the count of three, here's what I want you to do. I want you to call back, kids, I want you to call back what your parents say in response to that on the count of three. And parents, I want you to hear, I'm actually looking for some new material here because <laughs> I'm going crazy with this question. I, I give all kinds of answers. So on the count of three, I just want to hear what the answer to that typically is around your car. Okay, one, two, three. We'll get there when we get there. That's the one I heard. Who was that? <laughs> I love it. I like matching kids to their parents. Um, all right. If you've got some wisdom there, help help me out, because I, I need to be able to answer my kids with that, because they're going to ask very, very soon. Now, when I think of the word patient, sometimes my brain goes to there. Have some patience, right? We're going to get there. And so the word patient comes up. I'm, I bring up the word patient because in this uh, in this passage that we just read, we see this this word four times. 
So let me just give you a tiny bit of word work so we can kind of figure out what he's talking about and taking, there's different nuances in, in different languages. And the word that's used for patient here is really interesting and it differentiates from other places even in James that he uses this word. Here it is. It's a compound word and it, it makes up these two, these two things. Long angered. Macrosthumos is how it looks. Long angered would be long tempered or maybe even long suffering. So the word patient has to do with suffering for a long time, taking a long time to get angered or annoyed about something. That's the idea behind this word. Now, here's what's interesting. In chapter 1, we're told to be patient. We're told to endure. But there, it's a totally different word, and it's talking about enduring, trying circumstances, right? Here, what's in view is this. Endure, trying people. Now, here's the kicker. For the Christian, you need to be able to be patiently enduring trying circumstances and patiently enduring trying people. That's the way it is. And those are two different sets of skills. Those are two different sets of things that need to go on. Maybe the trying people that James has in view are the rich who are persecuting the poor Christians. And he's saying, be patient with them. Both of these are essential in life. Now, he offers basically three motivations for patient suffering, and here they are. He says, hold on because of this. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Verse 7, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the day of Christ Jesus. You'll see this said about 20 or 30 different ways in the Scripture. It's all pointing to this time when Jesus is going to return. Verse 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's another way of saying it's imminent, it's soon, it's any minute. Could happen at any time. James refers to this three times here because this is, if you want to talk about why should we endure, why should we hold on, this is the fundamental, paramount reason is that Jesus is coming back. Why would I suffer now for later? Because Jesus is coming back. It's this knowledge that things won't always be as they are right now, and that is a huge comfort to someone who's in suffering. Ladies who've had children, you know that's a huge comfort to know that it won't always be how it is right now. To an athlete who's suffering and they have this goal of swimming the English Channel or some giant goal and you say, you've worked way too hard. You do not want to get in this car. You do not want to get in this boat. You do not want to stop this. You keep going. Even to a child who's doing chores, a student who's doing homework, a worker who's plowing away just to make it to the weekend. This message that, that what we're doing now isn't how it's always going to be. It's going to get better. But for the Christian, what we're constantly pointed forward to and to look toward is the return of Jesus Christ. It's so important and so mandatory that Colossians 3 says that we're actually to set our minds on this future event. We're to fix our gaze, not on stuff here. Don't close your eyes to the stuff here, but fix your gaze. Set your mind on things that are coming and not what's here and present. It'll change the perspective of how you go through your day and your week, uh, every moment of your day. So here's the question. Do you anticipate the return of Jesus? On a scale of 1 to 10, what if there was like a thermometer? 
How hot or cold are you to the return of Jesus Christ? Is it brought up just when it comes along in Scripture? Is it brought up kind of casually and it kind of barely peaks a, a little small part in you? Or is it looming large and giant? I can tell you this, the Christian who's in deep turmoil today, it's probably a lot larger than those, those who are kind of sailing through. Let me give you a picture of two churches. The church who is the Lord's spokesman. The church who is living, who is living for, to, to, for tomorrow. The church who's being persecuted. In the same way and for the same reasons Jesus was persecuted. Because they're intolerant. Because they point to one way to the Savior. One way to eternal life. That there is absolute truth. To that person... They look forward to and long for the reward of his presence. That's a church that in the thermometer gauge, they'd be red hot. They'd say, man, we can't wait for that to happen. But to the church that is worldly and self-indulgent, enjoying popularity and comfort today, they have little interest in all of that ending. And they don't have much interest, frankly, in a king that will come and supplant and replace maybe their own kingdom that they've set up. Now, lest you think the church is just the gathering of believers, the church is made up of individual believers. So how about us? How about your family? How about you as an individual? Are you hot or are you cold to the return of Jesus Christ? Maybe this morning, maybe this is the giant message this morning that God wants to awaken your soul. You've just grown numb to it. You've just kind of, yesterday I was at the park and I'm pushing Eli. Eli, with any motion, he's like, he's like a grandpa. He just like, you know, grandpa Sunday after, after a meal. He just crashes. And so yesterday at the park, he's just out and, and just, just that subtle rocking. He doesn't stand a chance. I don't have to sing lullabies. There could be loud noises, all kinds of things. He's out. I know he's going to be out. And I wonder if in our culture we just, we just have this comfort. Kind of the soothing, you know, full stomach. We're just kind of lulled to sleep with things. Kind of lulled to sleep about what we believe. What we know to be true. What we're deeply convinced of is going to happen. But maybe today God's saying, wake up. Just wake up to that. If it's convicting to say, wow, I don't think that much about the return of Christ. Let that just be like a little poke to wake you up and go, I'm alert again. I'm ready. Thank you, God, for your word to wake us up to that. Now, here's what James does. He goes to the illustration of a farmer, something that we all get. I know we're not really an agricultural society, but we get this, right? Here's a farmer, and what he's talking about probably is a farmer, not some giant farmer like we have back in Nebraska that has, you know, tons of acres. This is probably a guy who who works the land basically for his survival. So he's dependent on his crop for his very existence. And he's a hardworking farmer, and... um. And he works hard, but ultimately, here's what he must do. He must wait eagerly. That's what he's left to do. Because as much work as the farmer's ever going to do, what's really, at the end of the day, going to happen is he has to turn all that over and say, so much of this isn't in my hands, right? The temperature, the quality of the seed, the quality of the soil, animals that will or will not come and eat my crop. All of these kinds of things he's now dependent on God for. James brings up that he must wait or be patient through the entire growing season. Now, Palestine's similar to here where the early rains would represent right now, October through November. That's the early rain. 
Okay, so get your crop in the ground. The early rains are going to come. Then you've got to wait all the way through to the late rains. When are the late rains? Late rains are kind of like April, May, kind of March, somewhere in that range, right? So what he's saying to the farmers is, you've got to be patient for the whole season. What if the farmer's patient for the first half and around Christmas time, he's like, man, I really want to see how things are going, right? Dig it up, check things out. Not no good. You got to be wait, patient and wait through the whole season. We talked uh, last week or a couple weeks ago about making plans and about people who make plans as if they're sovereign. This would be like the farmer who goes about and and makes his plans as if he's in control of the weather. He's in control of things that he's not in control of. It's foolishness to do that and not recognize God as our partner. So each believer must patiently endure the early rain and the late rain, the whole growing season until the coming of the Lord. One of the commentaries I read said it this way, and I love it. It says this, catch this. Live as if everything depends on you, knowing that it all depends on God. That's the picture of a farmer. Live as if everything depends on you. That means, farmer, you do everything you can, knowing that it's all dependent on God. As you're cultivating things in your life, as you're growing in holiness, as you're pursuing Christ-likeness in all of your character, in your thinking, in your marriage, in your family, in your friends, in your school, in your chores, do everything as if it depends on you, knowing all along it totally depends on God. Now, what we're talking about here is a big $6 word called eschatology. Say that with me. Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times. It's looking ahead and saying, what does the Bible have to say about end times? There's so many pointers. There's so much that the Bible says that there's a message that says God maybe wants to tell us something about what's coming, right? Now, here's the problem that I have with it. The result of this kind of study, the study of end times, must be holy lives. The result of studying about what's to come must be holy lives and not systematic speculation, forming charts and having little pamphlets and being super opinionated because you know or setting the date or those kinds of things or leading to endless divisions and controversies and arguments. So many people who are really into the end times give end times a bad name because they're the people that you go, oh man, I don't want to get into a conversation with that guy. He's got a chart on his iPad, and he's going to whip it out and show it to me any second. I don't want to get into an argument with that guy about that. The overcorrection of that, though, is to say this, to just be concerned about the fact that there's controversy and mystery to all that, and to say, you know what, I don't really know much about any of that. Rather, the Bible is filled with indicators. Study it. Say, God, what do you have for me in this? Why did you leave this clue here? Read the great minds who've gone before us, who've dialogued back and forth about, well, I think it means this and I think it means that, because you begin to see there and say, God, what's the truth in all of this? But in all of this, it ought to lead to a holy life. Listen to 2 Peter 3.14. Therefore, beloved, he's talking about end times. Here's what he says. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, meaning these things to happen, these certain events to go on, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 
If you're an end times guy or an end times girl, and you're pursuing diligently to be found without spot or blemish, in other words, you're working on personal holiness, and you're concerned about preserving the peace, I'm all for that. I think that is the way to go. That's the instruction we're being given. If you deny all of it because it's controversial and scary and you don't understand much about it, you just want to make peace, that's not pursuing truth. If all you are is about your chart and your opinion and what you've read and the position you've landed on and you're divisive to everyone else and you couldn't care less about personal holiness, you're off base. So in all of this coming of the Lord and looking forward to it, do so with the goal of a holy life. So the big question that lands before we move on from this point, Jesus is coming soon. Some of you have a problem with the word soon. You say, well, how, how long is that? It's the kid in all of us. Are we there yet? How much longer? I mean, what does soon mean? That's, it's been a long time. Let me just say this. The Bible ends with this message. Some of you know how the Bible began. Some of you know how the Bible ends. What's the last word in the Bible? Amen. That's right. It's a good way to end the Bible. Here it is. Revelation 22.20 says this. He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus talking, Surely I am coming soon. And then John adds this. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So that's our response. Jesus, the last recorded words of our Savior to us are this. I'm coming soon. Now, some of you are control freaks and you struggle with that. I want to know when. I'm not, that's not good enough. Here's, here's my challenge to you. Here's my invitation to you. It's going to be any minute. So just rest in the Father's timing. When the Father says, we're almost there, just rest in that. Rest in the timing of the Father and focus on being found faithful when the event does occur. All right, so hang in there because Jesus is coming soon. Hang in there because Jesus will judge soon. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is kind of the flip side of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to be a joyous occasion. We're going to get to meet our Savior face to face. But it's, there's also a flip side to that where Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge. And our idle words and our actions and our motivations will be tested and will be weighed at that time. James's instruction here is this, don't complain. Not with an outward lash, not with an inward sigh, not with a little eye roll, none of that. In your attitudes, in your words, in your actions, in your body language, even in your internal dialogue, don't speak evil against one another. Don't grumble against one another. He gives one simple motivation. The judge is about to come from behind the chamber and up onto the bench. Keep going. Keep going and don't, don't in the last days, don't in the last moment begin to be found guilty of grumbling against one another. Some of you have made this your family verse, Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another translation has that complaining that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, catch this, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here's Paul backing up what James is saying. He's saying don't grumble against one another, don't complain in light of the Lord's return. 
Have an, have an eye at all times to the fact that the master of the house could come back at any minute. And what do I want to have coming out of my mouth? What do I want to have rolling around in my thoughts when the master returns? That's what it is. That's what it means to redeem the time. That's what it means to, to number our days and say, and this could happen at any minute. James is always concerned that our outward actions match our inward heart and what we profess to believe. So if we profess that there is a certain date coming when Jesus Christ will come on the scene and will reward those who are his, he's saying, let's live our lives to back that up with thoughts, attitudes, and actions. All right, number three is this. He then points to the fact that others have made it safely through. Hold on, endure patiently. Because older siblings in the faith, they made it. And their testimony is, it's like they're calling out from beyond the grave. Saying, keep going, hang in there. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had a coach who has told you in sports or athletics to to keep going, to press on. And you know that this coach has finished the very race that you're in. He's finished the very course that you're in. He's endured the same kind of sport, the same kind of workout that you're currently doing. And you look up to the coach and you admire the coach and you respect him. And the coach is saying, it's worth it. Man, you want to get through this. And you know he survived it. You know he's still up on his feet. So you know you can get through it. Because of that. That's a little bit what the prophets are for us. Let me blitz through a couple. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because he faced such opposition to his ministry. There's Ezekiel. I'm still in the book of Ezekiel right now. He endured the death of his wife as a part of his ministry. There's Daniel who was yanked from his hometown as a young man and thrown to the lions amongst other things. There's Hosea who went through a heartbreaking marriage. There's Amos who faced lies and scorn everywhere he went for telling the truth, for simply quoting the words of God. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And that's the picture that there are older siblings that we see in Scripture and we say, man, God was faithful to them. Let me draw out three things that saints who've gone before us teach us about God. Here's number one. Number one is that God's blessing, uh, God's blessings are unlike ours. Look at verse 11. It says, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. We consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Now, you talk to an older Christian, and an older Christian, um, most of the time, even those who've had a really hard life, you talk to them as they've gone through difficult times, and you, you speak with them, and here's, here's a message I get over and over and over from godly older people who are finishing the race well. They say, man, that was a tough season. That was a tough time. That part that I shared with that was a difficult season in my life. But I wouldn't change a thing. There was a sense of the presence of the Savior and the nearness of God in those dark hours that I never would have signed up for. And if God had shown me all that was coming in the days and weeks ahead when I was living through it, I wouldn't have been able to endure. But you know what? He just parceled it out little by little, day at a time. 
And now that, now that time has passed, I can look back on that season and say, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't wish that on other people, but I wouldn't change a thing. Not only was the Savior seemingly closer to me and more intimate to me, but I was awake to the realities of what really matters, and that's a gift. And I see it now. I didn't see it when I was going through it. Second Corinthians 12.8 is a picture of Paul, who is commenting on his own trial that he's gone through. And the part that we like to quote, the part that we put on a bumper sticker or hang on our wall is this. My grace is sufficient for you. We love that part. But it's in the context of pain and suffering. Listen to it. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, this thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul talking now, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a deeper, richer gift that awaits those who suffer. Here's the big idea with this one. God's blessings don't come to those who do great things, but to those who endure. So don't focus so much on being fantastic. Focus on being faithful. Lord, day after day, I want to be found faithful. If you call me to, to reach to great heights, that's great. But I don't want to, I don't want to focus all my energy on that. I just want to, I just want to be found faithful. Here's what else we learned from saints who've gone before, prophets who've gone before. That is that God's purposes are accomplished in His timing. Talks about the life of Job. And it says that you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, Romans 8.28 preaches really well. It says that God causes all things to work together for good, right? To those who love and are called according to his purpose. But when you see that Job is an example of how God causes all things to work together for his good, all of a sudden it's not such a cute verse, right? All of a sudden that's a weighty, heavy verse. Job sums up some of what he went through by this, Job thirteen fifteen, he says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Let me just point out a couple of observations about what was accomplished in the life of Job. Okay, here they are. One is that faith was tested and found genuine. You can't ever test, the, you can't ever find the, the genuineness of it until it's tested. Secondly, Satan was defeated on the battlefield of Job's life. Thirdly, Job's faith was strengthened and was able to see God more clearly. And in the end, you read the end of Job's life, Job was doubly blessed at the end of his life as he was on the front part of his life. And now all these centuries later, generations of Christians have drawn strength and encouragement and endurance from this patient, loyal man of God who although all these calamities struck him, he didn't curse God and die. He didn't turn against God. He didn't blame God. Instead, he put his hope in him, though he was slayed. 
The third thing prophets teach us is this, that God's character is revealed and confirmed through suffering. Look at verse 11. It says, The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now this word, full of compassion, is used one time in the Bible, and it's right here. Some commentators think he may have coined this word, like made up this word. Sometimes pastors do that. They just make up words because they can't find the language to do it. Now, some of you know this. I know my own kids know this. But anyone know in the in Bible times where the seat of the emotion was? We usually have the heart as the seat of our emotion. I see two hand, three hands of my own kids. Here it is. Ready? The seat of the emotion is your bowels. Okay? That's, that's Old Testament times. Your bowels is where the seat of the emotion was. Here's what this word literally means when he says he was full of compassion. It, it literally means this. He was, he's many boweled. How's that for a picture? Okay. He's many boweled. In our vernacular, it would be like he has a massive heart. He has multiple hearts. He has, he has giant, enormous capacity for compassion. Now, you you got to get into the language because there's some humor involved in that, and your brain could go wild with, you know, writing love songs with bowel instead of heart. I mean, there's all kinds of fun you could have with that. But when you get into it and you understand that this word literally means he's many-bowed, he's full of compassion and mercy. There's giant room for God in that. Let me tell you what's always fitting and advised when you're in trial. It's always fitting and and advisable to focus on the character of God. Always. To lift your eyes from whatever the trouble is, to lift your eyes from whatever solutions aren't in front of you right now, to lift your eyes on all the time and resources you don't have, and begin to take your focus and start to focus on the character of God. You know where you will be attacked when you're in trial? You will always be attacked by the enemy on the character of God. God will be called the absentee father. You will get whispers into your heart and mind. They are flaming arrows that you need to deflect. There will be flaming arrows that will come to your mind and say, where is your father now? Where is he? How come he's not walking with you in this? The character of God will always come under attack when you're in trial and in temptation. This can even come, catch Job's life, from your own closest ally, your spouse, your friends, your family, those close to you can actually be instruments of the enemy in whispering against the character of God. This is why we come to church. This is why we read our scriptures. This is why we pray. It's to remain focused on the gospel. It's remain focused on the cross. You know where I want you to run every time the character of God is challenged in your mind and heart? I want you to run to the cross. And here's what I want you to answer to that voice. It's this. If God doesn't do anything else for me ever again, for all of time, He's shown me what He feels about His kids. It's done. It's finished. He loves me and He's provided ultimately for me. That's enough. The cross is enough. Not a single other blessing or gift is required to keep showing me what he feels about me. So when the character of God is being attacked, when he's being depicted as an absentee father or a cruel father or an uncaring creator, that's where you run with that. 
Did you catch what we just learned from the prophets? God's blessings, purposes, and characters and character are revealed in the crucible of enduring hardship in life. Now let me ask you a question. You ever long for the blessing of God? You ever said, God, would you bless me and my family? Would you bless my kids? Would you bless my marriage? Ever pray that prayer? I have. You ever wonder at his will and his purposes? God, show me your will. Show me your purposes. And have you ever prayed this prayer? God, show me who you are. Reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. We just learned from the prophets that the blessings, the purposes, and the character of God are revealed through these hardships by enduring, by patiently enduring these hardships. Sometimes answered prayer is very, very difficult. You've prayed those prayers, blessings, God's will, and to know God, and he answers it in this way. I want to wrap up this morning by giving you three things to live in kind of an any-minute-now mindset. How can I live this life now while being expectant for the next? Here it is. Number one is to glory in suffering. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yes, that's the great part of the verse. Very next verse, listen. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. And it's like, yeah, it's like the needle on the record. What? What did he just say? Catch this. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame or disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When you are in suffering, glory in it. You say in this moment, I'm being found worthy to suffer the very marks of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the prayer. I am showing, I mean, my own self is being shown the genuineness of my faith right now. That though I be beaten, though I be maligned, though I be reviled, I'm not living for this life. I'm living for the next. And this moment is proving it. Thank you, God. Your grace is sustaining me even in this trial. Number two, here's the second action to live in the any minute now mindset. Run to him with all of your problems. Write down 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Not only are brothers and sisters today suffering worse than what we have. If you're struggling with our unemployment rate, 
and then you see the unemployment rate of Zimbabwe. If you're struggling with your health and wondering if you're going to live to make 60, then you realize that many of us in this room would already be dead if we were the statistic in Zimbabwe. It awakens our hearts and our minds to the timing of the Lord, to the blessings of the Lord. Band, I want you to come on up. Finally, number three is this, to wait on the Lord. Here's when you can start griping, okay? If you have endured more suffering longer than either Job or Jesus, okay? That's kind of the benchmark. Now, I'm not even sure it's really godly after that, but that's the benchmark. If you can reach Job or Jesus status, that's our example, then maybe we can talk about that. We'll set up a half-hour appointment, explore some scriptures together. But until then, here's the message to all of us, and I preach this to myself, friends. Keep enduring. Trust the Father. Wait on the Lord. No matter the duration, no matter the wait, hold on. I close with this verse, Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God, we thank you so much that there is a determined time fixed in heaven that God only you know about that is going to happen when you are going to return. And we look forward to and long for that day to come. In Jesus' name, amen.